Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Welcome, everyone, um, to Undersampled Radio. Matt, what's going on? Yeah, you know, it's uh, I'm sort of just getting back in the swing of things after a couple of weeks away, still. Um, and, you know, just getting into my day. It, what, I'm, I'm in my, back in the hub, back in my usual, back in my usual seat. How's things with you? Are you busy? Finally busy. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, working on a couple of different little side projects, but uh, I, I actually am uh, working. Now, which is lovely. Uh, That's so I'm, cool. I'm doing an AVO under a density inversion for a client, um, and it's kind of neat. I'm, I'm writing the entire thing in Julia, which I haven't done yet. So um, it's it's always and the same thing goes with Python. So <laughs> so by the way, we, I I may have said this before. We may have mentioned this, but um, last year Matt and I were having a conversation. And it sounded to me like he was a huge fanboy of Python. And I said, just to be contrarian, I said, Matt, uh, Python sucks. And he said, no, it doesn't. What's better? And I said, Julia's better. And ever since then, I've been trying to spite him with my Julia nonsense. <laughs> so anyway, I'm writing an inversion. Spite or smite? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and... Uh... Oh, so you haven't changed your opinion then? Clearly, you're you're still going down the Julia road. Well, you know, honestly, Python is it, it really is wonderful. Um, but I'll never admit that to you. Oh, no. <laughs> I actually well, do a lot of work on Python. Um, you know. Yeah, it's a handy, it's a handy language. I've I've left it behind though myself. No. <laughs> no. Um, no, 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 I haven't left it behind. But I am learning another language. I'm, I started learning Lua. I have no idea. Tell us, yeah. tell us a bit about it. Well, I don't really know all that much, um, so so I'll keep it short. <laughs> uh, You're going to keep it to Hello World? <laughs> yeah, basically. Well, the cool thing is the Hello World is exactly like Python's Hello World. Um, so I first became aware of Lua probably three years ago, something like that, when um, the MediaWiki project adopted it as its scripting language. So uh, MediaWiki is written in PHP, so this is the software that runs Wikipedia and other wikis. Um, so it's written in PHP, and, um, and what you used to have to do to make anything kind of cool happen, if you, if you wanted to sort of have a page make a decision about itself, um, like sort of say, um, uh, what's a good example? Well, uh, so uh, a really so wikis are really strange things, right? So they're they're actually uh, these sort of living, breathing, almost organic things. So what some of the parameters for wikis live in wiki pages, right? So you can actually set some of the 
parameters for a wiki by editing a wiki page, and then another wiki page reads that page to decide what to do about something. Right. So it, it's it's a really kind of cool concept, and that it, it sort of permeates the um, the wiki way, as it were. And you wouldn't notice it if you were just reading a wiki, uh, because these are all on sort of weird hidden pages in obscure namespaces and so on. But anyway, um, the scripting previously was really clunky because it was all essentially written like right in the wiki, and you had these things called templates that could. Um, have these dynamic components and do things like an if-then, but you ended up with these extremely clunky, like the syntax was just horrendous, very clunky indeed. Um, so a few years ago they adopted Lua as a real scripting language, and the thing about Lua is it's embeddable. It's very easy to embed it into other things, so it's very easy to embed it into, say, uh, the wiki, in a, I guess a little bit like... Um, you know, a little bit like JavaScript, I suppose, uh, but it's still running on the server. It's not running in the browser. So they didn't, didn't want to go down the kind of JavaScript road. So keep control of the code. Make sure that you're only running your own stuff. And uh, but it, but it's really expressive language, just like Python. Dynamically typed. Really good at handling strings. Really good at handling giant strings. And sort of, it's a very lightweight language, so it's great for these big data structures. Anyway, sorry, I said I'd keep it short, and of course I'm not. Um, then I sort of ignored it for a while, and it popped up again at the hackathon um, a couple of weekends ago. I picked up the project that I started when I met you at the New Orleans hackathon, um, which was a silly machine learning uh, project, because we had a machine learning uh, theme at that hackathon. And I was trying to make, train a model and produce random sentences about geophysics, or random paper titles, if you will. And I finally got to finish that project. And the best neural network code I could find was written in Lua. And so the, 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 one of the sort of handful of major packages uh, for neural networks that's sort of come to the fore in the last few uh, months, really, um, alongside Google's huge TensorFlow project, um, which uh, has a, a really good Python interface, is uh, something called Torch, which is a Lua project. So, um, so yeah, so I was sort of wielding Lua again, um, and that spurred me to sort of try and learn a little bit about it so I can read these scripts better and uh, fiddle with them. Anyway, sorry, there you go. That's what, that's, so, so, there you go. Lua, pick it up. It's free. Um, it's Python-y. There's a good tutorial on the Lua uh, website. There you go. There's a short description for Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, the thi so, I, I would mention that the things I like, I, I, I came up as a C programmer, so moving into the Python uh Julia world, it, it's just, it's still incredible to me how easy it is to do things. Um, and right. so how how um, accessible is, is Lua to a beginner? Uh, I'd say if you know any Python at all, uh, it's going to be super accessible. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's one of those things where it's like so close that it, <laughs> it might be hard to keep them separate. 
in your mind. Um, so it feels very familiar. Uh, and I, I gather some of those patterns were picked up even from C. I, I mean, I don't know enough other languages to sort of know where the similarities are. But so far, I'm finding it much more, um, much sort of easier to grasp than, say, JavaScript, which is the only other thing that I use regularly. Yeah, I know, exactly. Thumbs down. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I struggle. Like, when people sort of say, hey, you know, I want to learn a programming language, what should I learn? Like, somehow, I mean, obviously, my first answer is Python, but obviously, I, <laughs> you know, just with that, that my level of comfort with it, and I know how flexible it is um, to all sorts of different problems. But it, I have a slightly hard time not like leaving JavaScript out of recommended languages. Like it's, it's pretty cool what you can do in a web browser, and. It, there's so many resources out there for people who want to pick up JavaScript and do interesting, fun things for other people on the web. I mean, yeah, it's not it's tangible. It, yeah, there you go. And I'm I have heard so uh, something I haven't really been paying attention to is sort of JavaScript. I mean, it seems like such a kind of chaotic language and community that I almost sort of can't believe that anyone's actually. Thinking about its future and a roadmap because it just seems like you can do whatever that, whatever you want already. Um, but apparently, it does have a roadmap, and there is a kind of there are release cycles um, for the specification of JavaScript. Um, and Java. So, uh, what, can you remember the name of? I feel I'm I'm not remembering the name of the specification or whatever you want to call it. Anyway, it's in its sixth iteration and. Because it's not called JavaScript six. Oh, I have no idea. Anyway, it'll come. It'll come back to me in a, in a second. Anyway, apparently there's sort of there are some new uh, things in the sort of latest um, iteration of JavaScript that are particularly good for numerics. ECMA, I guess, is the. Uh, I, I don't really understand that whole world, but ECMA six is the or ECMAScript six is the thing. So, because that's one of the things you notice right away if you're used to wielding arrays and doing doing vector and matrix math, math is that JavaScript is just not good at stuff like that. You can't easily read a column out of an array, uh, an array of arrays. You have to use a loop. So, um, if if that stuff changed, it would be very tempting to do all sorts of geophysics in JavaScript. Yes. Yeah. True. Yeah. Um, as it's as it stands, you need some sort of back end that does numerics, and you're passing JSON around, and it's all a bit clunky. Which presumably is Python. Uh, yeah, our back ends are Python, but yeah, whatever. I, has anyone written a web server in Julia yet? Uh, yeah, probably. They, someone has, yeah. um, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, tell us about the hackathon. Uh, yeah, the, so the hackathon was was awesome. I mean, the hackathons are a funny experience for me because they're they're not they're not stress free to organise. I write a lot of begging emails to people I don't know, and 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 one thing about this this go around was because I was writing to a bunch of it's mostly professors but also professionals in Europe where I don't have the same kind of network I have in, in the US and Canada. 
the level of kind of response I got was was much lower than usual. Um, I, I didn't I didn't count, um, but I, I bet I heard back from fewer than about twenty five percent of the people that I wrote to. Um, so I'm writing to these sort of random professors at IFP and places like that, and I don't know I find that. Um, demoralizing, I guess. It'd be nice just to get a thing back saying, I don't know who you are, I don't know what this is, go away. I'd rather get that than just sort of nothing. But um, So I have really had even less idea going into it, like how much reach I'd had, how many people had even heard about it. Because one of the things we always get, at least afterwards, is like, oh, that sounds really cool. If I'd known about it, I'd totally have come. Uh, so I, you know, I do try and like spread them out there. Um, but you know that takes time and uh, an effort and resources, and and those things are always in short supply. So uh, I didn't really know what I was walking into. We had like 20 or so registered. Um, I think we had 17 people actually show up. So it was enough for four teams, uh, which is which is great. Like I think we've had four teams or four to six at all of the hackathons. So that's been. Um, so maybe that was in line with what I should have expected. I was secretly hoping for more than 20 people. But, um, so, you know, uh, but, but once you get into the event, it's amazing, right? It's a fantastic experience to gather mostly strangers together, students, several MSc students, mostly from Leeds, actually. Leeds sent a, a, a big contingent, which was great. Um, Masters students, so you know, not experienced people. A couple of them hadn't really coded at all before. Um, all the way through to, I think we had the most professional coders we've ever had show up. So five guys dro drove on a sort of road trip from um, Freiburg in Germany, six hours. A little team of guys from a small consulting firm in Germany uh, showed up. Plus, we had a guy from Rockstar and the awesome Steve Purvis, who's uh, on Software Underground, um, uh, came from Tenerife. So, you know, that, that was so. What's so cool is these strangers come together, and there's a team with like a master's student, a professional developer, a PhD student, um, working on some tangible, real project for, for, for two days. So, I love that kind of deep connection that comes out of these sort of events. And once people get in the coding zone, that's really cool too. And it's, you know, the students always bring a level of kind of just uh, really inspiring enthusiasm. You know, there's like high fives and whoops and it just sort of really, it's really awesome to see. Like, um, in, in many cases, people who knew each other but had never worked on a project together, you know, too. So, anyway, so once you get into that, it's just it's just fantastic to be a part of it. Um, yeah, I so, can I can agree there. I, the the one I attended last year was amazing, and um, if anyone listening has a chance to come to another hackathon, I totally recommend it. It's it's worth spending the extra money to come early and get a hotel and hang out. It's it's a it's great fun. Is are we ready to talk about the SEG this year yet, or not? <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm happy to. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like no. Maybe we uh, should wait until another show. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess on on some level, I'd really like some kind of feedback. So, um, if if listeners and people on uh, Software Underground 
um, uh, want to like jump in with with feedback. I guess I'm looking for a little bit of encouragement because <laughs> I feel a bit hesitant about um, doing another fairly low key um, thing for a small number of people. Uh, we've been talking about trying to do something more audacious, for example, in the exhibition. And what that made me think is, okay, well, if we can be highly visible, but also therefore more, um, will be because we'll be during the actual conference. I wouldn't expect people to sort of show up with you know solid chunks of time. It would be more likely a couple of hours here and there. Um, so so we'd need to come up with something which is easier to jump in and out of but also can involve a great number of people. Like, can we make a thousand-person hackathon? You know, right. That, 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 that could be a really, fun, uh, a really fun challenge. So I've got an idea about what to um, build that around, but I feel like it's going to take more than just that idea. Um, and, of course, it would take a substantial amount of sponsorship. <laughs> If we're going to do something during the exhibition, uh, that means being in a, a, a booth and uh, to, you know just having access to some resources. So anyway, it's a bit up in the air. I guess uh, we're in the ideation stage, and I'm happy for people to jump in and contribute in any way they want. What's your idea? Uh, so the idea is to essentially challenge the community to reproduce... Um, Reproduce favorite and famous figures from papers in geophysics, leading edge, and the literature in general. So, um, basically, to write code snippets to check into a giant repo in GitHub that that reproduce these figures. So that means potentially harvesting data from public sources and/or from the papers themselves. Um, so, for example, digitizing cross plots, that kind of thing. It means uh, turning the published equations and algorithms into actual working code, maybe even in multiple languages. Um, I'm really into this concept of crestomathies. I can't remember if I talked about those. I, th I think I did mention them before. So uh, re repeating the same problem in multiple languages. Um, and just, yeah, sort of saying, look, we can take these these resources and make them an order of magnitude more useful uh, by, by coding them and not just leaving them as a giant pile of equations for other people to go in a way and implement on their own, right? Um, and potentially have 50 implementations of these things floating around, some of which may have serious bugs in them and, you know, instead let's do it together and do it in public. So. But I can imagine people showing up with like a paper saying, hey, I really want to like code up this paper. Or others saying, or oh, I've written a paper that I'll share the code for. Or just, you know, uh, here's an, or here's like, I really like the concept of this, whatever, elastic impedance implementation, but I think there's a much better visualization of, of the result, you know, so people who aren't necessarily coders can even contribute ideas around data visualization and sort of conceptual mashups you know what if you take uh, take this equation and make it frequency dependent and this, this kind of thing so yeah I think that could be really good fun um, 
it would be a, obviously a whole new set of unknowns to tackle and lots of other complexities around being part of the conference and so on. But uh, yeah, that's the idea. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're going to need some whiteboard sponsors. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Oh, um, well, that's cool. Uh, we'll we'll keep everyone up to date on the Software Underground as ideas develop. And um, as Matt says, he encourages feedback and contribution to um, the brainstorm that is the beginning of this semi-public hackathon <laughs> weirdness. <laughs> the the idea is completely open. I'm 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 looking for contributors and helpers and. Do you want to just remind people, Software Underground, how to get in there? Oh, swung.rocks, H-T-T-P, colon, slash, slash, S-W-S-W-U-N-G, dot R-O-C-K-S. Check it out. Um, I want to mention, since we're talking about open code for folks to just go have, um, I wrote... The middle of this project that I'm working on, um, I needed some standalone compression tools. I may have mentioned this before, but in case I didn't, the it's it's discrete cosine transform compression. Uh, you know, standard stuff. It's used in everything. You know, JPEG and all these things, uh, and it's it it works on its own, right? So these are seismic Unix tools that I've built into a standalone live, and uh, you can find them on my GitHub if you want. Them. So there's a compression tool and a decompression tool. And they work great. It's kind of nice just to have, you know, a, a little seismic compressor just sitting around in case you need to email some seismic panel or, or upload something smaller to Dropbox or whatever. So go check them out if you want. So uh, is that, uh, I don't know a lot about, yeah, sorry. <laughs> He's raising his hand, by the way. There's only two of us on this call and he's raising his hand to talk. <laughs> no, but the really stupid thing is that I thought, Okay, well, this is a podcast, so um, so no one can see me. So you thought I wasn't going to call you out? <laughs> and, <laughs> so A, thanks for thanks for drawing attention to it. But B, I forgot that we're also recording these uh, on Hangouts on Air, so people, if they tuned in, could actually see me. So the whole thing just went horribly wrong. <laughs> anyway, now that I've got your attention, uh, is this lossy compression like JPEG? Then it is. And you can tune the level of loss uh, based on whatever threshold requirement you have to to a limit, obviously. And um, you can you can play with the parameters a little bit to try to adjust your your compression ratios and things like that. It's a it's a really simple tool, um, you know, uh, just quantization, you know, just transform quantization, run length encoding, and uh, zip it up. So it works nicely. It's not the most effective compression you'll get, but um, Again, it's free and it's there. So if you want it, check it out. Uh, so I have another question. <laughs> is so in um, in JPEG lossy compression, there are um, sixty four pixel squares, so eight by eight squares that the compressor sort of, if you like, can bleed information across. Um, does your implementation? handle the compression on a trace-by-trace -trace basis, or can energy leak from one trace into another one, if you see what I mean? Is it voxel-based or trace-based? It is voxel-based, and you can tune the size of the voxel blocks as you see fit. I see. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. If you were a, a little bit clever about it, I think you could implement it 
almost as like a video compressor. Um, if you if you lined up your three D data with mm-hmm. a you know your third dimension kind of trailing back in time or something, so line and compress in a loop. Um, though, but so that would be like a two point five D compression. Mm-hmm. It's it's written as a two D compressor on a panel. Yeah, I see. That's an interesting idea. Oh, has anyone tried that? Do you know? Like MPEG style encoding of seismic? Yeah. Um, it, it's, again, you know, 3D image, video, uh, whatever you want to call it. There are 3D compressors like that specifically built for seismic. Um, well, actually, there was, there was a good yeah. one written by some guys at Chevron in, mm-hmm. in the late 90s, and I... Th- Kind of, I got in touch just to see what their idea was, but they filed a patent which is now expired. And uh, you can, if you read the patent, you can actually get a pretty good idea of what the algorithm was. So um, I'll I'll look it up after this and put a note in the uh, in the show notes. Mm, yeah. So Landmark um, had their bricked format, which is which did uh, 3D uh, lossy um, compression, uh, and I don't know how much is known publicly about that algorithm, but we thought it was kind of, it was kind of an interesting approach um, and had decent uh, fidelity. You know, you, you, you could get quite a bit of compression with, without losing a lot of fidelity. But uh, what I was going to say, I guess, about the MPEG idea was that actually in video frames, the sort of assumption is that there are large parts of the frame which don't change um, from one frame to the next, but you can't make that assumption with seismic because actually you know that you know that every time slice is different because it's band limited, right? So uh, well, I think that you can make some assumptions like that, and in fact, I, I would claim that you you can make uh, larger assumptions because the data is periodic. Now we're moving away right. from the realm of well, you traditional can make different different assumptions, I guess, about the periodicity and surely exploit that. But run length encoding still works across. If you were talking, for example, about stack data, um, there is some there's some symmetry between spatial slices because, I mean, if if you're in complex structural geology regions, there's there's a, a high degree of incoherence in the data. But if you're in say a pancake geology setting, uh, you you can be really very effective with your run length encoding across spatial slices. You know what I mean? Is this, in, is this uh, what's the bit depth of the data that you're compressing? Uh, the, the algorithm that's on my GitHub is, is 32. I mean, it's full, All right. full accuracy. Um, point. Um, but, you know, it, you must obvious... quantize it for run length encoding. Yes, yeah, of course. Um, but then the obvious first step is to chop it just Stick it into eight bits. Um, and th- I, can, you know, I, I actually can't remember, but I think you may be able to do that as an input. So, um, I see. Anyway, there you go. Um, mm, so cool. we've got we've we've covered two bullets, and we've got like seventeen bullets here in the notes. So, Matt, pick your favorite bullet, and we'll each do one more and cut it off. Yeah, um, 
Well, uh, okay, there's one, one's very short that I'll, I'll just mention really quickly. Um, okay, then you get two. You get two bullets. Yeah, sorry. So there's a special issue of The Leading Edge next March. So March 2017 is going to be on, uh, I think they're using, you know, I'm just trying to remember which buzz phrase they're using. I think it's data analytics. So in other words, there's a machine learning special issue, uh, March 2017. The associate editors are looking for paper proposals right now. Um, I stupidly didn't uh, didn't write down the guy's name, but it'll be in. Uh, I'll, I'll put a link to the uh, editorial calendar for the Leading Edge in the show notes. How's that? And that'll tell you who to get in touch with. But they're looking for papers in about November. Now, I know that that's well ahead of when the editorial deadline is, so there's probably a little bit of flexibility around what November means, but um, that's the kind of time frame. If you would like to contribute to that issue, I think it'll be a really good one, so um, I definitely will be. Uh, and I think we're going to also do a special tutorial for that issue. So we don't normally run a tutorial in March. Um, I haven't really given that a lot of thought, but if anyone's got a, um, a, a burning desire to write a short tutorial about some machine learning topic, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. And that leads me nicely into sort of a segue. It's not really a segue. Now it isn't a segue. <laughs> <laughs> I've derailed it. Anyway, the so after the hackathon, the mon so a couple of Mondays ago, was the EAG Open Source Workshop. So this is a somewhat regular event uh, in that every four years or so they add this workshop. Um, I was at the last one in Copenhagen, and the one before that, I think, was was in 2006, also in Vienna. So it's kind of a regular get-together for the open source geoscience community. And when I say geoscience, I mean geophysics. Uh, and when I say geophysics, I mean seismic modeling and inversion, <laughs> um, because that's kind of what what it's a, what it ends up being about. Um, but it, but I must say there were more people. There were definitely more people there this time than there were last time, which was kind of surprising given that EHE itself was a little bit of a uh, underattended, a bit of a downer actually. Uh, so I'd say there were at least. Um, 120, 140 people in the room, which is a pretty good turnout for something about open source software. Uh, you know, I, on, on the one hand, it's kind of the usual suspects, so Sergey Fomel talking about Madagascar, um, uh, Christopher Tingdahl from DGB talking about Open Detect, uh, me banging on about uh, you know open source community activities. Um, there was also uh, well, they always do quite a good job of, and the sort of the best bit of the whole day actually is the sort of it's not really lightning talks, but shorter talks that just sort of kind of bang through a bunch of new projects. So I documented these on the blog. Uh, it's right now that well, while the post was on the first of June, it's called "Open Source Geoscience Is Blank." Um, so you can you can go find that if you want to kind of read about all the projects. The couple of highlights, there was a, a geological basin modeling project, which, uh, for, well, not not truly open source because it's built on MATLAB, um, so it's built on proprietary technology, but maybe it would run or could be adapted to run on, on GNU Octave, which is an open source implementation. 
of MATLAB. Um, so that was really cool just to see a geologist talking um, and a woman talking uh, and a cool project, which is basically taking well data um, and building 3D 3D basin models and modeling things like compaction, burial rates, and so on. So that was really nice, and some some cool visualizations too in the package that she's built. Um, and then there were like I think at least I counted five FWI packages. Um, so that's pretty hot. Two of them written in Julia, uh, three of them in Python. Um, so these are out of various places, uh, MIT. Uh, where else? Edmonton, a couple of other places. I can't remember. They're all on the blog. Um, so, so those are sort of. So that was remarkable, I guess. But the, the packages themselves, I can't say much about. I don't know a great deal about them. And actually, one of the patterns that I sort of mentioned in the in the blog was a little bit of frustration around this sort of. I mean, I guess these are consortiums. So I understand why consortiums exist. They're they're a good way of funding uh, academic research. Um, but frustratingly, the consortium seem to be sort of building an open framework, and then there are private or proprietary or secret add-ons and plugins that actually implement all the cool things that the consortium wants to do. And I, and I guess I understand why that happens, and I think maybe that's fine to keep them secret for a while. I think, you know, at least in Canada, many of these universities are publicly funded. Professors are paid out of public money, at least partly. Um, they're certainly using publicly funded resources. In a in a way, they're they're like kind of turning into software uh, development shops. Some of these consortiums they've basically got grad students writing code that the grad student will never be able to use again once they've finished because it's locked away in Shell and Schlumberger and the other sponsors of these consortiums. Um, and it's just it's just a bit weird. So you know I, I, that that came out in the in the workshop. There were a couple of slots for discussion. Um, you know, Schlumberger, a guy from Schlumberger stood up and said, "At Schlumberger, our favorite consortiums are the ones that have proprietary code, like the web. We basically purchase the code essentially, and um, it never sees the light of day. Like that's that's the sort of consortium we want." <laughs> I was just like, "Okay, great." Um, would you care to burn some bridges here and, and mention some of these consortiums? Uh, well, he was just talking in very general terms about, you know, consort. Well, I mean, take I, one of the ones that frustrates me is SEAM, um, which is an SEG consortium. The SEG is a member of the consortium, and yet the SEAM models are private to the consortium for very for long periods of time. So I, I believe the SIEM, original SIEM model is now open, but the SIEM2 model is not. Uh, it's only accessible to the consortium members, even though SEG is a member of the consortium. Well, so, no, sorry, I'm, I'm, that's not quite true. Even though SEG essentially ma maintains the consortium in a way, or hosts it. Um, actually, so, so one of my recommendations to SEG was that it becomes a member. Essentially, it signs up the membership for the $40,000 a year or however much it is to join this consortium. There are 40,000 members of SCG, so it's like a buck a year per member. Um, and then we all get access too. But I, and I guess one of the things that riles me a little bit is that the language around, and 
the seismic apparition guys from ETH and Statoil used this language. Uh, the chat that talked after them also used this language, uh, where they're like, we want to progress geophysics. We wanted to put this uh, algorithm or this method out there into the community to make geophysics better. We want people to get better at w whatever it is, simultaneous source acquisition in their case. Uh, and yet, it's all encumbered by patents. All of it's protected. All of it's proprietary. We're not actually giving away any, uh, you know, there's certainly no code. We're not even telling you the details of the implementation that we're using. I mean, I asked one guy at, um, from a university in Brazil that I can't quite remember the name of uh, in Rio. He, you know, he'd done some work for, for Petrobras, essentially programming work for hire, as far as I can tell. He wouldn't even say what language the stuff he'd done was written in or what machine learning libraries he was using, right? I'm just like, why even tell the community about this? It, it's kind of like, it would be like it would be like buying a cookbook, and all it has in it is pictures of the food that someone's <laughs> made. <laughs> it's just like, what? What's the point? I like, I get that everyone's doing cool stuff. That's great, but if there's nothing I can do about it, then just keep it to yourself because it's just of no use to me or anybody else, or you know, the community in general. It's not progressing geophysics. You're not putting things out there. You're right. You're you're doing your own thing in your own corner. Don't call it anything else. And and if that's what people want to do, and if that's how people make a buck, awesome. But don't come to scientific conferences and share it in a scientific paper like it's progress, like it's even science. I can't check your work. I can't. It's not reproducible. It's not science. Sorry. It's basically a weird kind of advert. So anyway, sorry. Nice place to advertise. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. So just a, a tidbit about SEG, and you know, this is hearsay. Let's have another. Let's have another rant, please. <laughs> no, no. So apparently this year there were more. Uh, uh, so I remarked to somebody EAGE. Wow, this is probably the smallest EAGE has been for years, and there's still 15 parallel tracks of talks, <laughs> <laughs> right? That spread over a distance of like a kilometer and a half between each other. I mean, it's crazy. And some of the talks, I went to a couple of uh, SPE talks, and there were literally sort of nine people in the room. I, you could have had a you could have had a Google Hangout, and it would have been a more effective way of sharing the content. And um, and I said, wow, that's kind of weird. And someone said, well, actually, uh, SEG this year had a record number of submissions, which I was like, oh wow, that's kind of surprising because. A lot of people I've talked to have said, I'm not going to conferences, can't, can't travel right now, there's a total ban on everything. But I guess it's like this, it's the only way to go to SEG now, is, is to, to, to have your abstract accepted, and at least you've got a shot, right? That's right. The, uh, additionally, or alternatively, you could uh, come exhibit your ideas on the, on the uh, undersampled radio. Oh, yeah. Because you'd still get nine people listening to you. <laughs> Okay, yeah. so um, occasionally while we're doing this, I'll time Matt's rants. Oh, and God. in in fact, um, my, what was supposed to be Matt's one bullet point before my one bullet point turned into Matt's seven <laughs> bullet points. And I'm going to save my last bullet point for next time. Oh, what? Why? What? How next long time. have we been? How long have we been going? Next time, long enough to put everybody that's li that was listening asleep. Oh, I'm sorry. So, uh, thanks for <laughs> listening in, everyone. 
Um, we will see you next time with um, something, somebody. We're going to have a guest. I, get, uh, I don't promise, but I hope that we're going to have an awesome guest for you next show. Matt, see you later. Cool. Yeah. Take it easy, man. Bye. Bye.